Good evening. We are so pleased you're here. This is quite an evening. I think you will agree. Uh, we are so delighted that you could be here tonight. I'm Carla Hayden, the CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to what I think you'd have to agree is a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. Now, for the past few weeks, you can imagine, we have been really looking forward to this day, and we are truly honored to have with us this evening in Baltimore a history-making woman. As you know, she was the first ever female Secretary of State, the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. Now, I know we are all eager to hear about her critically acclaimed new memoir, Frog Winter, A Personal Story of Remembrance in War, and maybe even some insights into several international events that are happening in the headlines today. We were delighted, though, that she also has copies tonight for us of one of my favorite books, and a little privilege, I'm going to get it signed, Read My Pens, Stories from a Diplomat's Jewel Box. Now, in this book, she chronicles her beautiful and meaningful pens that she wore on all of her diplomatic and international trips. As you know, former President George H. Bush was known for saying, read my lips. Well, Secretary Albright then started to urge reporters and colleagues to read her pens. And her pins became part of her diplomatic signature. So to honor all of that, all Pratt staff members here tonight are wearing special, meaningful pins. Mine says read. <laughs> so we want to thank all of you for being here tonight. Now, to introduce um, our special guest is one of the Pratt Library's biggest supporters, and we're so proud that he is here tonight with us. He is the president of Goucher College and a renowned author and commentator himself. Please welcome Mr. Sandy Unger. Well, I'm, I'm not even the warm-up act. I'm... Um, I want to want you to uh, welcome my good friend and our former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. Madeleine Corbell Albright. Hello. Thank you all for being here. Good evening, Madeline. Good evening, Dr. Unger. <laughs> um, we uh, have the mission tonight of talking about your book and some of the themes that you've explored in the book, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, but you mentioned to me earlier when we first got together this evening that perhaps we should tell a couple right. stories about how we got to know each other. 
But we have known each other for a very long time um, through politics, I think, mostly. But it was in um, the 1980s or um, actually in the late 70s. We were sitting in a restaurant having lunch and I was called to come on CNN to talk about some uh, foreign policy issue. And they called me up and they said, well, your guest is just canceled. We don't know what to do. And I said, I have the perfect person. He can talk about anything. Sandy Unger is here. So we went off together and we did a pretty good kind of talking head show. You were at, perfect. At, at the time, someone gave me a t-shirt after that who said, um, just sort of generic talking head. <laughs> <laughs> could talk about anything. I also remember um, after the Velvet Revolution, and we're going to go way back in time in just a moment, but after the Velvet Revolution of 1989, and when uh, a very, uh, there was a big surprise about who was becoming the Czechoslovak ambassador to Washington, who happened to be a mutual friend of ours called Rita Klimova, and she used to be the person that every journalist who went, every American journalist who went to Prague would visit because she spoke such wonderful English. She, was, she spent junior high school during the war in New York. And she was named by Václav Havel to be the Czechoslovak ambassador to Washington, which was just such a surprise. And I was assigned by the New York Times Magazine to write a piece about her in this unusual event and I came to the Czech embassy, and I found a great surprise But who was answering the phones there. Moi. Y- you. Yes. <laughs> because they didn't have many people in town who could speak Czech. And the new regime, the new democratic government, yeah. had not had a chance right. to send somebody over and replace the other people. So, and I agreed with you at the time. It's one of the... One of the few journalistic compromises I ever made, I agreed not to say in my New York Times magazine piece that you had been answering the telephones. Well, yeah. It's my claim to fame, but I do have to talk about her. She was remarkable. As you say, she was the interpreter for Havel, and, and what happened, and President Havel um, has recently died, and he was a very good friend of many of ours, and um, so it reminded me of this, is when he came to the United States in 1990. Well, I had first met him actually when I went to Prague. I'm chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute to offer them help right after the Velvet Revolution. So, and that I, was when you first met him. That, yes, it was after that was the right. And uh, he knew he was meeting with some American delegation. So I handed him. My father had written a book about 20th century Czechoslovakia. And so I'm handing them a book, and he said, I know who you are. You're Mrs. Fulbright. And I said, no, I'm Mrs. Albright. Uh, (laughs) uh, And so began a great friendship. And then he came to the United States, and I actually was doing all the advance for that trip. And what happened was we were having dinner at the embassy, and Rita had been his translator, and he handed us the speech that he was about to give for the joint session of Congress, all written out in hand on yellow pad. And he said, so now translate this. So we did that together. You and, and, you and Rita did you it You and Rita, together. right. And, we, and then we were down at the Blair House practicing for him to give the speech. And he started and he said, I don't like this word. I would never use this word. And so he decided to give the speech in Czech. 
but it was, uh, and you were there, Senator, when he spoke, and it was one of the amazing speeches, and he really was an amazing human being. And Rita, I have to tell one more story Did about Rita her. translate for him then as well? He, when he, no, Michael Jantowski oh, did. Right. Who was, but what happened is Rita Klimova and I had mirror images of lives because of our fathers. My father, and we'll talk about this, was a Czechoslovak diplomat who spent the war in England. Her father was a Czechoslovak journalist who spent his time in the United States. Right. There was a major difference. Her father was a communist, mine was not. And so when the, the coup happened in 1948, they were happy and they stayed in Czechoslovakia. We left. But she came, she decided ultimately that Marxism was not correct and she became a very good Democrat. And she was in the United States, and she was recalling her American life. And we'd go somewhere, and she said, I want a pastrami on white. And I think, you've got this wrong. Nobody has pastrami on white. So I was trying to get her organized here for right, her American right. life. <laughs> well, it was, um, it was such a surprise when she was named, because any journalist who went to Prague... Knew her. Absolutely. Knew her, because yeah, she was yeah. the first stop she to was find the out voice. what was going on. Yeah. She lived in this tiny apartment. Do you remember her... One-room yes. apartment, right. really. Yeah. She was living the life of a dissident, an internal, almost internal exile, yeah. but, but yeah. within Prague. And it was such an extraordinary thing that she became Absolutely. the ambassador, moved into that great house in We Washington. had to liberate it. Right. So that's what we were doing, getting rid of all the social realist art and putting up uh, photographs from the Velvet Revolution. Right, so. right. So uh, your, your book uh, is called... Prague winter, and I have to assume it is in contrast to Prague spring, the Prague spring that everybody knows about yeah. when uh, the enlightened, the, the communism with a human face, the effort in 1968 by Alexander Dubček to pull away from the Soviet Union, which lasted a few months, yeah. really. Eight months. Eight months, and was then crushed by Soviet invasion of Prague. So you're, you're talking about Prague winter, which was a kind of, um, well, I associate with the bleak time before World War II. And I think it's a time that many people have forgotten what this new country of Czechoslovakia went through in that period of the late 1930s. And, and I thought we might focus for a little bit yeah. on that, because I, I, I don't imagine there's all that much that's not the part of the book that people tend to focus on when you when you go around talking about it now. And I um, I, I wonder if you could... I, w I was reading a section of the book a few days ago about President Benish at the time and how he could not... He, he was torn back and forth. Does he compromise with the Germans? Does he not? He was pressed by the Allies. And I think that that picture you draw of a country being dismembered and given away, essentially, yeah. to the Nazis by its allies, by its friends. And I just wonder if you wanted to pick up on that a little I'd, bit. I'd be happy to. And let me put it into a bit of a larger context, because Czechoslovakia 
was a country, a new country in 1918, having been created out of the fallen uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and very much a product of Woodrow Wilson That's right. and the 14 points and the idea that countries should be based on self-determination. And so this man, uh, Thomas Gehrig Masaryk, who was uh, the epitome of a Czechoslovak, his father was a Slovak, his mother was a Czech Moravian, was the first president. Now what's interesting about him is that he was married in the last quarter of the 19th century to an American woman, Charlotte Gehrig, and he took her maiden name as his maiden name. That doesn't happen a lot. I didn't know that's and where that so name came from. So that's where no. it came from. And then the Czechoslovak Constitution was modeled on the American one with a truly significant difference. At that point, it had equal rights language in 1918. So here was this new country... Uh, populated by these new people, really, who called themselves Czechoslovaks. My, that's what my parents did. But it did have a mi- had minorities within it. And there was a very large German minority that lived in what is known as Sudetenland. So it was sort of on, on, the, on the borders. The northern Germany, part. It was northern. called Sudetenland because it was <coughs> south of Germany. And then there was a Hungarian minority in the south, where I think you said your family had really come from. Then there were some problems with the border with Poland. And then there was this little end, a piece on the end of Subcarpathian Ruthenians. So Which was eventually was sliced off. Sliced off after the, after the World War II. So here was this new country that really was the only functioning democracy in, your, in Central Europe during the interwar period. Thomas Gehrig Masaryk's foreign minister was this man, Edward Benish. Masaryk died in 1937, and he really was, uh, he was a brilliant president, a humanist, um, a, somebody who understood international relations, and he looked the part. Uh, and people thought, I've got some pictures of him in the book of, you know, what the president of the world might look like. So he, he, there is this foreign minister who then becomes the president, Edward Benish, who was a very solid, good thinker. And Benish was a Czech. He was a Czech. And this is what happens, is uh, part of the problem developed with this German minority, where there's always a question, I think, in any country, you know, whether there, there's majority rule and minority rights. And even though it was a democracy, there were some Germans who lived there who complained about the fact that they didn't have the right number of jobs that they should even though there were Germans within various mm-hmm. parts of the government. But I, am, you know, I can believe that there were those who were dissatisfied with the setup. So Hitler comes into power in Germany, and there are those Germans that live in Sudetenland who are uh, motivated and I think in many ways um, hijacked by this man, Conrad Henlein, who wanted to make sure that Czechoslovak- that part of Czechoslovakia went to Germany. And he was, he was a very sinister, deceitful, deceitful character. Deceitful, right. And, but he did work off of a, some amount of discontent. So that's the setting. And what happens in, here's this new country, there were alliances formed. The French uh, signed a non-aggression alliance with them in 1935, saying if, the, if you ever were threatened, the French would come in and help you. And the Soviet Union kind of, uh, tagged on top of that and said, if the French help you, we will help you. And that right. was just kind of the alliance structure. 
Then what happens, to get to the point that you asked, is Hitler begins to assert himself, uh, not just what he was doing in Germany, but also wanting land. So the first thing that the Allies do is give him Saarland, the Rhineland, and kind of, you know, it sounded German, it was between Germany and France, and so that was the first step. And then they begin to agitate Hitler and Konrad Henlein about the fact that those Germans that were in the Sudetenland should belong to Germany. And Hitler claimed they lived miserable lives. Horrible lives, suffered terribly, and that this was really unjust. So then you have to put yourself in the picture of what was going on with the Allies. And I really hadn't focused on this enough until I started, I mean, I've studied this period, I don't know how many times, uh, but I think I understand things better now, having been in office myself, is that both the French and the British were very tired from World War I. World War I had left huge scars on them. They'd lost a lot of young people. They had economic issues. They also thought that they'd figured out that the League of Nations would be capable of helping. And and if you remember, they signed a bunch of agreements, the Kellogg-Briand Act, Outlaw War and Disarmament Treaties. And all of a sudden, the last thing they wanted to do was to fight with Hitler. And so they began to deal with him um, without ever talking to the Czechoslovaks about it. And, And basically... Um, giving in to him. This is where the word appeasement really came into style. And so the period is a complicated one, and the role of the United States is not one that I wanted to discover either when I go back and look at it now. We were, the Americans were uh, in an isolationist mood. And President Roosevelt had an awful lot to do at home with the New Deal and a variety of domestic issues uh, and did not want to get involved in a war. And we had, I have to keep now, Americans had um, an ambassador in the United Kingdom, Joseph Kennedy, who also was not exactly opposed to uh, what the Germans were doing. You know, his son, actually, President Kennedy, then wrote a book while England right. slept. So, but it showed me the, the real um, role that ambassadors played in that point in terms of his reporting on what was going on. Made a big difference in the Very perceptions. Very big difference in the perception. And there were a lot of uh, British people in the government that were more afraid of Bolshevism than they were of Nazism. And so the, the, through a series of talks they actually did uh, allow Hitler to come in. So that's kind of the shortened version. But it was, to me, the lesson out of this was great powers gave away the fate of a small country and did not live up to alliances. And the Soviet Union always had an excuse that they would have come in to save them. If only the French French had. And that, all those kinds of things that happened affected the Czech psyche, and we can talk more about that, but, but the events of that 37 to 39 period right. really had a huge influence on the future of Czechoslovakia. Um, some people, no doubt, who are here tonight, no doubt have read about this, but the role of, of uh, Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, um, you, talk, you, you remind me in your book about some of his profound weaknesses as a person, and uh, this there's this quote from him that I think haunts a lot of people still. 
why should we be putting on gas masks? Why should we be arming ourselves in defense of a people we hardly know or we do not know? Well, why should we worry about faraway places with people with unpronounceable names? Right. Um, that was what that's what he that, said that, that was what, what he said, said about Czechoslovakia right. yeah and so um, as I mean you often wonder what people's influences are but as when President Clinton came in and we were dealing with Bosnia a faraway place with people with unpronounceable names and so I, I do think and I in the book the book is really made up of three layers the, at the core it is my family story right and uh, what happened to what I found out about my family, what happened to my family, the story of a Czechoslovak diplomat. And, and then the next layer is the historical layer, the 37 to 48 period, which is a very fascinating historical period. And then the third layer is about decision making and what right. difference leaders make. And so um, I talk about Chamberlain in this way, and I say you can't operate on the basis of hope and wish. He wished that Hitler would turn out differently. President Roosevelt wished that Stalin, hoped that Stalin would turn out differently. And so leaders have to operate on fact-based issues, right. not on, on hope. But Chamberlain is known for his coming back after this horrible Munich conference where the British and French made a deal with the Germans and Italians without any Czechoslovak being in the room. In the room. They were in a hotel. Right. They gave, they gave away a country. Right. And so I think that the, the lessons out of Munich and appeasement right. and caring about people in faraway places. Chamberlain, at the start of those talks, he had his first airplane ride. Right. That's how unworldly he was at that point. Well, there weren't a lot of planes. But, I, I mean, the bottom line is he, he didn't... He was... Um, you know, he, I don't think he was a, I know he wasn't a very strong person. No. And you imagine what it had been like if Churchill had been in office been at in that office time. So earlier. it does matter who right. our leaders are. Right. Um, just to, to press this point for a moment, Hitler sort of sat back and laughed, I think, at, at, at the incompetence of the, of the Western allies at this point, or what we would call the Western allies, the French as I remember it from when I studied this period, the French manufactured no airplanes in August of that year, no warplanes. So Hitler knew he could do what he wanted. He knew he would get what he wanted at Munich and that he could do what he wanted to do. Well, they never pushed back. I mean, right. they now, granted, and I, I think I understand this better, is the tiredness from war, uh, the scars of the previous sure. war, the effect of the previous war. Um, and... And I saw it. I mean, I have to say, in discussions that this is oversimplification, but as during decision-making during the Clinton era, when we first came in, I had the Munich syndrome uh, of saying we can't let this go. And then there were the people with the Vietnam syndrome, <laughs> which is why would you yeah. want to get involved in a quagmire? Right. And so people really are affected by whatever the experience they had just before. I mean, you can overdo both of them, sure. and it's oversimplification. But I do think that period is known for the fact that even though the West had some military, that um, Hitler really fooled them. And what was happening was they were also still thinking about fighting the First World War, the Maginot Line, sure. and various parts that they were looking at and not a lot of imagination. And th- there's some very disturbing references in your book, in this period in your book, about 
um, how much people sort of admired Hitler for his strength and they, they seemed to overlook so much and didn't want to tangle with him. They didn't want to challenge him. Well, I think that um, people did. I mean, he had taken over a country uh, which was economically in very bad shape um, gave people a sense of pride about the country and their culture and their history, found scapegoats, um, and I think uh, was in charge. Also, you know, one of the things we talk about, things that are going on now in uh, the Arab world mm-hmm. or wherever, the, the brilliance of new technology. There was new technology then. He used it, radio, uh, in a way that was massively clever propaganda, and he could motivate huge crowds and kind of organize and lift a disorganized country. And so, and people, look, it it would take a crazy person to imagine the kinds of things that Hitler would do in the end. Nobody had ever thought that those kinds of barbaric, uh, sadistic uh, things could possibly happen. And so... um, I mean, I make no excuses for people, but it is hard to imagine, you know, in it was hard to, mind, hard to who would have thought about it. Although he'd written about much of this, but, but people not, thought... I mean, the Holocaust he had not, no. you know. And so uh, I, I think that... Uh, but he had a grand plan. And, right. and what the British and French did was feed the beast. They didn't, you know, by saying, okay, we'll just take another little piece of that country. It just happened to be the one where I was born. Right. So that brings us to the other layer and another part of your book, which is how your family, how your parents experienced this period of time. Well, uh, first of all, let me just kind of um, say this. I mean, I, I start the book by saying I was 59, and I thought I knew who I was, right. and I thought I knew what, country, what the country was like that I came from. It turns out that neither were true. And so as I talk about my family, I have to separate what I knew at that time and what I've learned since. And so in a nutshell, the thing that happened was that I was raised a Roman Catholic, became an Episcopalian, and found out I was Jewish. So um, uh, You had had it covered. Had it all. Um, We have interfaith discussions. But what happened was that um, my parents, um, first of all, were of this generation of new Czechoslovaks, Mm -hmm. and they were so proud of that. My my father was a young diplomat. Um, He had um, gone to school in France and had a law degree, and then his first post was as uh, the press attaché in Belgrade. And um, then... And my mother was, I look at the pictures, you know, a pretty flapper, and um, they had a very good and interesting time. And when they were in Prague, they, they talked about having had an Art Deco apartment. And, and you can just visualize. I'm sure people are, here have been to Prague and kind of... Did you ever see that apartment? I never did. But yeah. I can visualize walking up and down streets in Prague and going to cafes and shopping mm-hmm. and, you know, I think the various things they did. So they had that life. And... Um, I was born in 1937, and my mother wanted to have in me... In Prague. In Prague, even though they were in Belgrade. She wanted me to be born in Prague. Uh, and so then they went, back, she, they went back to Belgrade. And um, I think the thing, you know, when I found their wedding certificate, uh, under religion, they had in Czech, bezviznani, which means without confession. 
not that they were atheists, but that they were very secular. Mm -hmm. And so they saw themselves as Czechoslovaks, that I am sure of. Anyway, when I went to the United Nations, that's when I first really became a public figure, and there were a lot of profiles written about me. And so, like any public figure, I began to get a lot of mail, and I'd get letters from people saying, uh, send money, or I want a visa, or... <clears throat> and then some of it, they were written in Czech, which I can read, but some in inscrutable handwriting. And I got a letter, I remember one, where somebody said, I knew your father in 1915 in high school, which would have been impossible since he was born in 1909. But mostly, they were just didn't have the facts right. So then in November 1996, I got a letter from somebody that had all the names right and the towns right and the dates right, and it said, we knew your families to be fine Jewish families. So it was just the time I was being vetted to be Secretary of State, and so I was in the White House Counsel's office, and they asked me the normal questions, like, have I paid my taxes, or do I have a nanny, or those kind of things. Uh, and then, at the end, they said, is there anything we should have asked you, or could have asked you, that you might want to tell us about? And I said, well, I have reason to believe that I'm of Jewish background. And they said, so what? The president is an anti-Semitic. So over the holidays, I talked to my children about it, and mm -hmm. they were completely fascinated. Um, you know, they loved my grand, my parents, and my youngest daughter's married to a Jewish man, and we just said this just adds to the interest of the whole story. You can't uh, talk to journalists between the time that you've been named and the time that you're confirmed. And there was a reporter from the Washington Post, Michael Dobbs, who wanted to write a profile of me. So my office gave him the names of various, rel not relatives, but people that people might that have known. And so on the day that I was confirmed, he came into my office and started giving me these horrible documents, which were, the Nazis were really good record keepers. And so they had the names in whatever transport people had been sent out on and which concentration camp. And they said, this is your grandmother, this is your grandfather. And I sat there just stunned. It's one thing to find out you're Jewish. It's another to find out that so many of your relatives died in the Holocaust. And so... I um, had, the only way I can describe it, it's as if I had been asked to represent my country in a marathon, the first woman ever to do that, because people were watching to see if a woman could possibly be Secretary of State, and, um, and be given a very heavy package, and then asked to unwrap it as I ran. That's the only way I can hmm. explain it. I obviously couldn't go do anything about it right away. And so I asked my brother and sister to go to begin to put together mm -hmm. the story. So that is how I know a lot of things now that I didn't know at the time. But to get to back to what you asked, what happened was when the Nazis came in, my parents were in Prague and they somehow got out. My mother write, wrote a little uh, essay and she said a little bribery along the way. And they did then go and join President Benesch and the government in exile in London. So I grew, we went to London when I was two years old. I remember nothing about my grandparents beyond photographs. And when I was talking to one of my cousins in England, and she'd say, well, I said this to grandfather or grandmother, it occurred to me I had never called anybody grandfather mm -hmm. or grandmother. And so we, we spent the war in England. My father broadcast for the BBC. Uh, in, in Czech? In Czech, uh, in, to the resistance in mm -hmm. Czechoslovakia. 
And uh, we were there until May 1945 when he went back with President, uh, with the Czech government and started working for them in Czechoslovakia. But the Prague winter, Sandy, really refers to the whole period. Sure. The winter of the uh, uh, invasion by uh, the Germans and then this 45 to 48 period which was very sad because it had, that's another story about the coalition government. My father was in Yugoslavia and the second winter. So your father was back in Yugoslavia, right. this time as ambassador. As is ambassador. That right. And because they spoke Serbian. Um, uh -huh. And you know, and I, the picture of little girls in national costumes that give flowers at the airport, I did that for a living. Um, <laughs> and um, my father didn't want me going to school with communists, so I had a governess. And I got ahead of myself, and so they sent me to Switzerland for one year. But the irony of all this, he, he had been in Yugoslavia. He then was ambassador. And what was the big issue that I had to deal with when I was at the UN and Secretary of State? It was the former Yugoslavia. Right. And so I could, under, because I understand Serbian, I was able to understand what, what was, right. it's just life is very peculiar. But he was, and they were, my parents, you know, this, they were 20, my mother was 29 and my father 30 when they when left, they, when, they, when left. they went to England. When they went to England. And then in 1948, when the communists took over, we came to America, so. And, and uh, did your father and mother always see themselves as Czechoslovaks? Did they, did they retain that identity? They did. I mean, they, they definitely saw themselves as that. I don't know. I think they didn't think about going back because they loved being Americans. Right. I think people ask me what is the most important thing that ever happened to my, me becoming an American, hands down. There's no question about that. And my father was a, a pretty realistic um, man and people, he was very young, much younger than most of the people that have been in the government and so he didn't spend a lot of time kind of with the emigre community calling each other your excellency and um, <laughs> so he started a new life in Denver. So, well, so when, um, when he went back to Prague after the war with the exile government, he was in his late 30s. Yeah, he was, he, he was Czechoslovakia's youngest ambassador. Oh, wow. um, and so, and what happened was he went back, he worked for Jan Masaryk, the son, the son of, Thomas of Thomas Gehrig Masaryk, yes. who became the foreign minister. Right. And so, and the complication of this was, and it goes back to the, what happened in 37 to 39, because the Soviets kept playing off of the fact that they would have defended Czechoslovakia, and because Czechoslovakia doesn't have a border with the Soviet Union the way the Poles do, there never was a real anti-Russian feeling. Mm -hmm. And so they worked off of the reputation that they would have saved uh, Czechoslovakia. If only. If only. And then there was this embarrassing period for them between 39 and 41 when the Nazis and the Soviets had a pact. But they then... A little hard to explain away. A little away. hard to explain. But they then did, in fact... Uh, fight in the resistance, right. and they, the communists, won the plurality in the first 1946 elections. And so there was a coalition government. So the foreign minister was Jan Masaryk, uh, and his deputy was a man called Clementis, who was a Slovak, who was a communist. And so it was a very complicated kind of government. And it was 48 when the communists 
staged an internal coup right. and took over. Was it Clement Gottwald was the communist party leader? He was the communist. And he was a union leader, I think, wasn't he? Or a well, their union supported him. But the right. thing that happened is that the communi- what, what Stalin actually wanted, I mean, as he acquired his empire, one of the issues was they wanted to get one satellite by an, a vote. And they really thought that Czechoslovakia was the place. And they had legitimate reason to think that. As mm-hmm. I said, the communists actually had won. The Social Democrats had gone along with the communists. And in 48, they thought they could just flat out win. But what was clear already that the Czechoslovak people knew that this was all a fake and that the communism was not working. And they, they, it looked as though they were going to lose that election in 48. And so as a result of a lot of machinations and too complicated story, I tell the story, but it's too hard right. to tell here. Um, the coup was staged in February 1948, so that's the second winter. Um, and my father's last assignment, because uh, he'd been ambassador for three years, was to represent Czechoslovakia at the United Nations for a commission uh, on Kashmir. Uh, Commission on India and Pakistan. He's dead, I'm old, and that problem is worse than ever. But uh, <laughs> So he sure. didn't know whether to take the job or not because he didn't want to work for a mm-hmm. communist government. And so what he, the British and American ambassadors in Belgrade persuaded him to take the job. And, in fact, the British ambassador said, if you resign they will have to name a communist in your place. To be... Um, to, to, to be at the UN. At the UN. Uh, but if you don't, they're never going to remember in the middle of a coup some uh, thing to do with India and Pakistan. So stay on and report to us. And among the various documentations that I got were my father's reports to the British Foreign Office. Um, but um, when we came to the United States, it was hard to explain to people because technically... He had been working for this government, was just at the beginning of the McCarthy era. Uh, And Mm. so my father, I have the letter that he wrote to, because he resigned and defected, and it's a letter that he wrote to Dean Acheson, uh, one of my predecessors, um, (laughs) begging. He said, I beg for political asylum. Mm. And so um, when he said... What did they think of themselves? My father said, of all the things in life, nothing is better than to be a teacher in a free America. And he was a professor at the University of Denver. Sure. It strikes me this is one of the many turns in your story where, I mean, it could have been that your parents were in Prague, could have been in Prague at the time of the communist takeover, and they could have had trouble getting out before very long, but because they were in Belgrade, did they come back through Prague and no, my, pick up well, their... Well, they didn't, didn't. I mean, what happened was my mother, uh, they came to see me in Switzerland in mm-hmm. May. My brother and sister uh, and mother went on to England. My father went on to Geneva uh, where he got his assignment. And I, I was telling you, the secret police turned... Uh, the, the, one of the things that my book is based on is that the Czech secret police files were given to me. And I found a notation that said, we know that he's not going to come back. Hmm. They, they figured out that he would not. They, he had all his worldly goods. He pretended he was going back. And they sent all their things to Prague. 
Um, and um, they, so sent, they, they sent, sent everything back to, to Prague, Prague as if he were going as back. As if he were going back. I, I have to tell this story because the only person that knew that was going on was his secretary. And so um, her, she was told that she should send personal books and photographs to us, but to send everything else back. Because life is what it is, everything got mixed up. <laughs> and we were refugees, displaced persons, mm -hmm. living in small rented houses in Denver. And all of a sudden, these crates arrive with the oriental carpets from the large reception rooms um, in, in, in from Belgrade. the embassy in Belgrade. So I grew up walking on large carpets folded in eighths. Uh, <laughs> You know, and, and paintings. That, I mean, pretty crazy life, actually. And, and uh, you were in your... So your father just immediately launched a new career then. Well, what happened with him, and this is, a, again, a, I think, a great American story. The Rockefeller Foundation at that time was giving... Uh, finding jobs for uh, Central European intellectuals or something. And they found him a job at the University of Denver. Mm-hmm a place we had no idea where it was. Um, and so... So by this time, I'm sorry to interrupt you, when you got to Denver, you were about 11, 11 years old. 12, 1949, so right. I was 12. Um, and they bought a car, and we started driving. And my mother finally said, they say Denver's the mile-high city, but we're not going up. So maybe we're going the wrong direction. Anyway, we ended up there, and my father taught international relations ultimately became dean of the graduate school at the University of Denver, and now the school has been named in his honor, the Corbell School. Which is very nice. Yeah. So uh, just to digress a little bit personally, I, I'm, I'm wondering what it felt like for you to be a young teenager in Denver at that point coming to, coming to the U.S.? Well, first of all, I did speak English. Um, and, but because very, of being in England of, during the I, I grew up bilingual, and... But I'll never forget this. We arrived. Uh, my father came a little later, but my mother and siblings arrived on, appropriately, the SS America on Armistice Day, November 11th, 1948. Harry Truman was my first American president. And then uh, Thanksgiving, right? So we're all singing. I'm in the sixth grade. And we're singing. We gather together, uh, you know. And all of a sudden, I heard somebody asking for God's blessing. I thought, who is asking? And I heard that I was asking, and from then on I asked. Uh, and uh, so I very deliberately lost my American accent, my English, English accent. And we moved to Denver, and I was desperate to fit in. A little difficult, given my parents, because my mother didn't speak very good English, but she was the most delightful nut in many ways. And so what she did, we had parties, and they had students over, and my mother read people's palms. And she would make up great stories, and people thought she was delightful. Uh, she gave it up when she read my palm and discovered that I didn't have a brain line, so <coughs> we, we, we gave it up. Uh, and Very my father wanted to fit in in Colorado, mm -hmm. so that meant fishing. So he'd go fishing. We'd all go fishing every weekend. The problem was that he fished in a coat and tie, so that didn't work. <laughs> And then every weekend, they stuck us in the car to have family solidarity. Uh, and 
to look at trees. And now I love being in Colorado to look at trees, but it didn't interest me at that point. But I now understand what they were doing. We were a completely nuclear family. That's all they had, Mm -hmm. just the three children. And they wanted us to be together all the time. And my parents' brilliance, I think, was, was to make the abnormal seem normal. We had lived through bombing in World War II. They had left everybody uh, behind then, then went back to Czechoslovakia, and all I knew was that my grandparents had died because they were old. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they came to America, and they wanted a new life, and they did it for all of us. uh, So I suppose one could also raise this question about your identity and, and how it evolved. You said you recognized how wonderful it was to be in America, as your parents did. But do you still feel a little Czech? Do you still feel Czechoslovak? Do you feel Jewish? Do you, how, do you, how do you sort all these extraordinary things out? Well, I asked my parents whether I was Czech or Slovak, and they said, you're a Czechoslovak. So I grew up with that. I, I speak Czech, um, and... Um, it's been very interesting. I, I went back, the first time I went back was in 1967 with my American husband, American name, American passport, and was told uh, by some friends of my parents that my father had been tried in absentia and sentenced to death. Mm. Now he had, I now know through the documents, he had been tried in absentia, but there's no evidence of being sentenced to death. But it certainly made me nervous about going to visit. So I went back in the 80s under the auspices of the U.S. Information Agency mm-hmm. that sent experts to various places. And I, and I remember kind of walking around and thinking, I look just like these people, and uh, I understand everything they say. I wonder, you know, what it would have been like if we had stayed. And then what happened was this miraculous Velvet Revolution. And... And I, we just had a, a big meeting in New York honoring Václav Havel, and I said this there. As a Czechoslovak, watching what was going on, while the uh, Poles had revolutions every five years and the Hungarians had a great revolution, and the Czechs only had that brief period in '68 that you talked about, and people say, what's the matter with your people? Why aren't they doing something? And it was not until Václav Havel that there was this great pride for somebody that was born there to see this brilliant, I think one of the major figures of the 20th century, uh, and and meet them all. And so after the Mrs. Fulbright event, I, in (laughs) fact, they asked me to, all his advisors asked me to come and talk to them about how you set up a presidential office. And I drew diagrams because I'd been in the Carter administration. And then I was walking back to my hotel across Charles Bridge in the snow in January, and I had an out-of-body experience, which was, I have never left here. This is where I belong. And then I thought, well, I wouldn't have been able to tell them about how a presidential office worked if I, had, if I wasn't an American. And so I do feel. Um, the, the craziest part is that Václav Havel wanted me to be president of the Czech Republic. And... Um, which did not seem appropriate. Uh, but So who am I? I am, um, as I said, I was raised a Catholic, became an Episcopalian, found out I was Jewish, uh, an American of Czechoslovak birth, a mother, a grandmother, a Democrat, small d, big d, um, a, a professor, a political figure. Uh, I am like America, indivisible. Right. <laughs> 
Let us, let us. Just one more, one more avenue, briefly. Did you have you come to question any of the decisions your parents made? And I mean, it must have been very difficult for them to decide how to tell you who you were. Well, I've been asked about it a lot, and, I'm sure you I, and have. I have to say the following thing. First of all, um, I can only speculate about different things. I, um, I think that. Have I questioned them? No. I wish I had asked them questions, but I don't question any of the decisions. I think that as I put the story together, uh, I think that, as I said, they were Czechoslovak patriots, and he, my father was very associated with President Benes and a democratic Czechoslovakia. And I can understand why, as a young diplomat, he would have wanted to go and join the government in exile. Uh, and do what he could to reclaim his country. I don't think anybody imagined in 1939 that it would be so horrible and, um, and that his parents specifically did not want... My one grandmother was already a widow. Her, mm-hmm. That grandfather had died of natural causes, and uh, her daughter, my mother's sister, was sick. And the others actually... My paternal grandparents, the plans had been, as I've now found out, for them to come to England. So I think they had no vision that this possibly could happen. What I find interesting was to, they must have known what was going on during the war. My father broadcast, but um, they, they made life, as I said, seem relatively normal in the air raid shelters and bombing. And then when they came back, they clearly didn't find anybody. Um, and so I, uh, I can, I can, you know, people say, well, why didn't they tell you? I mean, I was eight years old mm. at that point. Um, and then we come to America, and I think that they really thought, why have all this pain? Why put the pain onto the children? And so I don't question it. Uh, a lot of people want me to be mad at my father. I can't <laughs> in my wildest dreams be mad at my father or my parents, And one of the times in the summer of 1967, I was secretary. I went back to Prague for the first time. I was taken to the Pincus Synagogue, which has the names of all the 80,000 Czechoslovak Jews who died. And I'm taken to the place where my grandparents' names are. And I just obviously stared at it and I thought, had it not been for my parents, their names and mine would have been up there and my brother and sister would not be alive. So I am, I don't question their decisions. Um, I wish we had talked about it. Um, And then people say, uh, you know, you're a relatively intelligent person, why didn't you ask your parents? And the, the truth is that I had a complete story. I knew about the, I knew that my grandparents were in business, I knew the names of their dogs, I, you know, I, I, I knew about them, uh, but, and, and I, they talked about Christmas trees and celebrating Easter and uh, full stories, and there was, if, if you have no idea, there's nothing to ask, mm-hmm. and so that is, uh, but and so, I, I, so I can only speculate. So Czechoslovakia is no longer Czechoslovakia? It's now the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Is that a bad thing? Well, I have a hard time with it, but I do think that 
again, as I look back now at what I thought was this perfect golden country, I don't think that the Slovaks were treated as well by the Czechs as they should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, they are getting along better now. I was In 1991, I went and did a survey with Andy Kohut from the Pew Group, and we were doing focus groups, and we were in Slovakia, and we, and we asked the following question. Would you like... What would you prefer, to be number one in ice hockey as Czechoslovakia or number 12 as Slovakia? And they said number 12 as Slovakia. And that was a clear sign that they wanted to have their independence. And so the the Czechs and Slovaks actually get along much better now. As separate countries. And and the Czech Republic today, uh, is it a, a smaller country than Czechoslovakia was? I assume you identify more with the Czech Republic than with Slovakia. Yes and no. I mean, I go to both, and they identify with me. And, um, but I am, you know, I was born, a, I was a Czechoslovak. So for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm more at home in Prague. And they're, they're really lovely to me. Although they treat me as some combination of a queen and a really irritating older sister. <laughs> <laughs> Does... Do you think that uh, these two countries have prospects of being strong, surviving better than the country did, than this poor, um, neglected or, or abandoned country did in the 30s? Well, I mean, Europe is a very different place, and I think that um, they, thri- they could thrive within a Europe that operated uh, if the European Union weren't going through what it's going through at the moment. They have a president at the moment, Václav Klaus, who's not so big on the European Union. But I think that they need... Small countries have a very hard time uh, in terms of trade issues and all that. But I think that they feel comfortable where they are. They have good relations with their neighbors. And the most interesting thing is the good relationship between Germany and the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. um, given all the things that went on. And, and partially because Václav Havel understood what had happened and the Germans, um, you know, really, I think, have been forthcoming. And then life is so peculiar. On March 15th, which is the date of the Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia, um, last year, the German government awarded me their highest decoration. So, you know, it's a very strange kind of life goes on. Sure. Well, I, I do want to say I think the book is remarkable. The combination of your family story and these dramatic events in Europe are, uh, are compelling to read about. And uh, thank you for being here tonight. Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Thank all of the people in the Wheeler Auditorium, 240 people upstairs. We will have a book signing, and Miss Madam Secretary, happy birthday. We know it's this coming Tuesday. Can't lie. Can't lie. We will have the book signing right over here, and the Ivy Bookstore, thank you, Mr. Berlin, is selling books, and thank you all for coming. <laughs>